0: Welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Today I have as my guest a very long-time friend and coaching colleague who has been a great voice for NCAA tennis and American tennis at large, and that's Dave Fish of Harder Men's Tennis. Dave, welcome to the show and how are you today?
1: I'm doing great, Steve. Thanks so much and thanks for all you do for tennis.
0: Uh no problem. Hey, as I mentioned, as I've mentioned to the listeners before, um to give an introduction comment is important because uh uh to understand dave and and uh you know the kind of the context of our discussion today many most people do not take the time to read the introduction of books i found this to be the case and uh for those of you who do you're going to know my next comment uh if you've ever read mortimer adler's how to read a book and if you haven't you should um, reading the introduction is a must and uh so i always uh, when i was teaching uh in the classroom on different uh, subjects i would always that would be one of my reading list books is uh it teaches you how to read through books real fast as well as uh be able to get the gist of arguments uh quickly but here's the point uh, we always have to have introductions and uh, sometimes mine are lengthy because i want people to understand our our uh, guests and Dave Fish at Harvard is in his 39th year as the head coach at Harvard. 39 years, Dave. That's a long time. I had, well, uh, I hope it I had doesn't been Doesn't U- like a
1: long time for my guys.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had. I was at. Uh, I was at uh, a at, uh, at UC Irvine for 17 years, and I was an oldie but goodie, But 39 years. Holy smokes! Isn't that a record? Aren't? Isn't that somewhere like in the top three or something of active coaches?
1: Well, it could be. I try not to count those, Steve. It, it, it still right. feels like yesterday that I started. So <laughs> yeah. I'm game. Well, that. you had a you had, yeah.
0: You had a you had a player in the semifinals of uh, the most recent nationals. So uh, that's uh, you're still doing it. So at uh, 19, he was a 1972 graduate of Harvard. He played in three national championship squash teams. I bet a lot of his coaching college, college colleagues might not know that, and one Ivy League championship tennis team uh, with the Crimson. Uh, as a coach, though, so he's had an impressive uh, 626 to 84 to one overall record. Okay, i got to ask you a question. I know what the one is, but can you explain it?
1: You know, someone told me we had a draw somewhere back there. Someone went into the record books, and I didn't even remember it. So that shows how long <laughs> I've been here.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, he's the winningest uh, men's tennis coach in Harvard history. He guided Harvard into NCAA championships 22 times. At one time, ten consecutive seasons. He's tutored fifteen All-Americans, including uh, a lot of the listeners will know James Blake in singles and doubles. Um, and uh, now the achievements aside, I think Dave will be the first one to tell you that it's more important uh, about a person's character and their integrity. And Dave is at a great—he's a great friend on both counts, and uh, he's more interested in the development of tennis than the focus being on him. So let's get into some of the topics that will encourage players, parents, and coaches. And particularly, we're going to be touching on, you know, how things influence or related to the NCAA, USTA, and the UTR, uh, the UTR, the Universal Tennis Rating. Um, And uh, so I'd like to say let's get started, um, let it rip. And uh, so one of the first things I'd like to talk about, Dave, is let's talk about the Universal Tennis Rating. And can you kind of fill us in on the origin of the rating?
1: Sure. Um, um, Thanks for that nice introduction, Steve. The origin really has been uh, a good friend of mine, Chuck Creasy, some years ago described to me the difference between a ranking and a rating. A ranking works well if you're in the top 10. It doesn't work so well if you're ranked 10,242. Ratings actually have been proven to, to work successfully in a number of sports, particularly France, where they use ratings to produce 12 times more players per capita than we do here in the United States. So we've tried to take a lesson from their book and uh, the founder, Dave Howell, down in Virginia with the Lifetime Pro, uh, who created a system that its whole goal was to put players together in a way that facilitated their having competitive matches with each other more often. And so it really he created out of that a what I would call a mastery scale, it's a 16.50 scale that rates every player in the world, all the way down from entry level players to Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic at the top. Um, what we find is that it has an enormous, um, it, it really becomes like the connective tissue that the world of tennis has lacked, because we live right now in a system of restarts. You restart from the 12 and under when you move up into the 14s. You have to start doubling up on what you pay as a parent, how much school you miss. And we restart in the 16s, then the 18s. In college, you restart again. And then if you get out and want to play as a pro, you have to restart again. So what Universal basically has done is taken all the world's results uh, from many different systems, which is now the new normal, and rated players according to their actual level of competitiveness. Uh, When I learned about this from the founder, I was so amazed at the impact that this could have on American player development, and and now we've seen that it could be on global development, that it prompted me to invite him up from Virginia to speak to a a, a group of pros here in Boston. We were all so amazed at what we learned in a couple of hours that um, I was was encouraged and motivated to write a lengthy paper, and people were... (laughs) And no matter how lengthy it was, people still read it and said, wow, this makes so much sense for American tennis. So this has been a six-year project, Steve, and something that is a labor of love for many people and now has hundreds and thousands of enthusiasts, um, not only in the United States, but worldwide, um, understanding that this is the connective tissue that we've been lacking for, really, for as long as tennis has been going.
0: Well, let me let me uh, there's a couple of questions I already have is for example, why do you think something like this wasn't done earlier um and if like you say you know in France it's there in other countries possibly but why do you think um this uh hasn't been thought of before?
1: I don't really know except that uh you know we have a we have an organization called Doctors Without Borders and it's because diseases don't respect national boundaries. But our national federations are essentially constituted on national boundaries so when people think about tennis they tend to think in terms of usda sections or uh uh, the usda as a nationality we don't tend to think globally about tennis in any in any practical way and so i think that um one is if this were done 20 years ago we wouldn't have had the tools that we have for big data and number crunching that uh, are commonplace in every aspect of our lives now. And so in some ways, even the the International Tennis Federation tried to have something called the ITN some years ago, but um, it lacked a practical foundation. There was no real reason that players or coaches or parents would use it until Universal, which actually practically... Um, began to reunite a very fragmented world of tennis. If you look at tennis, we have college tennis, which is essentially largely disconnected from the rest of American tennis. You have pro tennis, which is disconnected. You have USTA junior tennis, which is disconnected. And then you have 345,000 high school students, um, which really don't feel a part of the system because they go into USTA event, event. Largely, they lose. So, at every level we we nobody's really been there to connect it and and our model was looking at the development of the of the um educational testing service back in the nineteen thirties, where a group of organizations came together and said, "We need a neutral independent group for managing the testing so that people know." what level they might be suitable for in college, and then colleges in turn can look back and say, is this student suitable for us? So in some ways, although it's kind of limiting, you might think of the of UTR as the SATs of, of tennis. It actually lets a young person look at the level, his or her level, against their level of thousands of players on any college roster in the United States. And in turn, it lets me as a college coach look at the level of play of a player in Moscow or Minneapolis or Melbourne or Miami. And so this is the first time we've ever had an apples-to-apples comparison, similar to the way people all over the world use the SATs, uh, whether they're coming from home school or online school or private school or public school. It really doesn't matter. And uh, UTR really rationalizes this fragmentation
0: let me ask there's a couple points here that one is you mentioned psychology next week I'm going to be having Alan Fox uh, we're going to be talking about the mental game of tennis and this would be something along those lines when you're saying uh, I think Chuck Creasy you had mentioned one time said psychologically it's it's very different you know you get a kid uh, you know that's uh, for example ranked you know like you said 2000 something um, there's there's a huge difference between if I know that hey, I'm in this ranking system, I don't, and I'm sure we'll talk about this. If I'm in this ranking, uh the rating, uh I have this range, I'm in a certain level like we would in France, then uh there's there are there's always a pecking order in tennis, but there's this sense of like uh you are going to be able to, you know, play at that level and uh the the pressure, I think the psychological you're not gonna run from matches. You're gonna say, you know what, I'm gonna play this guy and I'm gonna go after it. And you're not gonna worry about, hey, I gotta protect this because I don't wanna ruin my rankings. So I think psychologically, mentally, it, it it actually would enhance competition. You're just because I know when I grew up, I mean, yeah, there were rankings, et cetera, but you just played. You just competed. And whether it was whatever sport it was, you didn't worry about that stuff. You just played and then let the chips fall where they may. I know um Paul Goldstein, for example, at Stanford you know, when I asked him about his junior uh, background, he said, man, I just played. He said, I don't even know enough about tennis. My parents weren't tennis parents. We just ran around and played tournaments. And, uh, you know, and then the rankings came. Okay, chips fall, fell where they may, and that's what happened. And I think this, it sounds like what you're saying, this helps promote that sense of, hey, it's just kind of wide open. Play where you play where you can, and you'll kind of be in a certain rating area. And then, uh, you know, uh, you'll be rewarded for those plays, and you don't have to worry about the pecking order of rankings so much. Is that... Is that accurate?
1: That's really right. If if you think about it, on a given day any 13-year-old wakes up and whether they stayed up late to watch a scary movie or they forgot their energy bar, or didn't have breakfast, we know that human variability fluctuates from day to day, often from hour to hour. What a rating says is this is your approximate bandwidth based on your last 30 up to your last 30 matches in a calendar 12 months. And so rather than living or dying based on one match you say this is my body of work and my body of work suggests that if i play someone within 1.0 up or 1.0 down of my say i'm ranked i'm rated 11.41 if i play up or down against someone the odds are 2 or 300% greater that we will have a competitive match that is Um, The the founder of Universal created a concept he called competitive threshold. He basically says, if I can win one game more than half the number of games I would need to win a match, let's arbitrarily say that you've reached a competitive threshold that uh, Steve, if you beat me three and four or five and four, we've had a good match. You haven't crushed me. I haven't fallen over to you. Both of us got a lot out of it. Any, Um, learning theory expert would say both players benefit. The more often people have a good close match, the faster they improve. Engagement goes up, motivation goes up, and skills go up. And so Universal is so confident in matching people according to their bandwidth that they say that if a player less than 1.0 below you beats you, Universal doesn't even consider that an upset. That's in the normal range of behavior. So that instead of people living and dying by their wins and losses, Universal has created a system that I call a system of personal bests. Let me explain that. If I'm a swimmer or a runner and I swim in a swim meet or I run in a track meet, I can still understand what my personal best is because it's against a time. In tennis, we tend to use a pass-fail system. I either won the match or I lost the match. I might have lost the match 7-5 in the third set, but a ranking would treat that the same as if I had lost it 6 love, 6 love. So in many ways, universal, what Universal had decided to do, which I think is its brilliance, is that it uses games won versus games lost. So regardless of the length of the contest that you use, it still says, this is how well you did, and it will even raise your rating if you've lost to a better player by a more competitive score than we might have predicted. So at every level, it gives people a a motivational aspect that says, boy, I play within my bandwidth. If I get a chance to play a player higher, that doesn't mean I should lose to them like I might in a pecking order ranking. And I, and I get to play at that level and and have a sense of accomplishment no matter where I am in the tournament. And if I could just explain a little bit about the French system that makes it so ideal. We've had players go over there for the last two or three years, and they all come home saying, Dave, this is sensational. Why can't we have this here? So essentially they use what is called a tableau draw. Tableau draw means that a lower-rated player will enter a tournament at an earlier round and advance to try to earn the chance to play a player who enters the tournament at a later round So that a month-long tournament, uh, a pro might come in on the very last weekend of that month and play for a couple of thousand dollars worth of prize money, but not have to enter the tournament till the quarterfinals. So everybody has come in and gotten a dose of what they need. You come in, play a player you're a little better than. If you get through that nervous match, you play someone you're even with. If you're lucky enough to get through that match, then you get to play someone better. And that's really psychologically it's a much better way than the way we often do it, which is to put our worst players right up against the first seed. You get your clock cleaned. The better player is a little bored from having to play through that match. The worst player is a little disillusioned and says, hey, I'm going to go play ultimate Frisbee. And so we wonder why our churn rate or the rate at which we lose players from their first, after their first competitions is 37%. That's a dreadful record. And it's something that works better in France, where, they, as I said, they produce 12 times more players per capita in their system.
0: Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, you know, me as a coach, and and uh, you know, I'm extremely competitive, and and it's one of those things where, you know, some people may say, hey, you know, that's just the way it is, you got to compete, and uh, but you know, don't we as coaches always say, hey, you know, one of our players comes off, yeah, man, that was a great match, you know, win or lose, yeah, I mean. Yeah, we all want to win, but bottom line is, you play great tennis. You know, I have a saying that I use with my team all the time. If you always give your best, you'll sometimes play your best and one time be your best. And if we really believe that, if I said that to every coach, every coach would believe that. It's, you know, a good coach. You know, they would say, look, you got to give your best. That means drain the tank, 100%, mental, physical, tactical, emotional, everything. Put it out there. Every single day, what you're doing and you can't play your best all the time, so you may not beat that guy, even though it's six four six four. You might beat him next time, you know. Um, uh, Brandon Coop said when he's out on tour, it's like, uh, you know, maybe eighty percent of the time he plays kind of in a certain range. Ten percent he plays his best. So this system, it sounds like, it rewards you for playing your best or giving your best, really, not playing your best, but giving your best. And isn't that what we want to encourage? You know, not people have people discouraged because I'm zero and ten. I remember uh, when I was, you know. Uh, you know, uh, in one conference I was coaching at UC Irvine, we had, you know, we played UCLA, USC, uh, Pepperdine. We played a lot of schools right off the bat, so we'd be zero and four. So I'd have an alum come up and ask and say, "Hey, how you guys doing?" I said, "Oh man, we're playing great." Well, what's your record? My point, my you know, my first thought was, who cares? You know, <laughs> it's zero and four. But the next, yeah. But, but the next next five matches, we're going to win, and we're going to be five and four. I mean, that's not what matters. What matters is, did I play my best? Did I train hard? And did I get to the point where I'm playing way better? And then that's how you get your schedule. You get your schedule so you're playing some people you beat soundly, some people you're even, and some people it's it's tough. So um, I think that goes along with what we're trying to do as coaches. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Steve. And and these the points-per-round system was was very well-intentioned, <clears throat> and now it's really the standard all over the world. The problem with the points-per-round is that If you have a weaker section competing in their sectional championships for the same number of points as they are in Southern California, you have a disproportionate reward. When you put people in a tournament, a level-based tournament, which is what ratings are used best for, then everybody is playing and being rewarded according to their actual accomplishment, not to some subjective number of points that we reward. Each of these systems that the kids are trying to survive in, points per round was established to get to encourage kids to play more so they wouldn't duck tennis. And our premise is that kids don't quit tennis because tennis burns them out. They quit tennis because the system of jumping through a lot of hoops that are unnecessary, that are expensive, that are that are sort of boring and demotivating. It's that which causes people to go find something else. And so what Universal does is just, it really is, is, is an antidote toward a system that has worked in some respects, but in other respects causes people, in, in some ways I joke about it, it's almost a, a player undevelopment system because it rewards players for finding the greatest reward in points for the lowest risk. And so whether you're a player in one of the weaker USDA sections um, uh, trying to find a tournament where you can get get more points, even the players from a weaker section show up higher in the national rankings than they ought to because they're rewarded disproportionately. Same way in the rest of the world, if I play an ITF event in Uzbekistan, I'm probably going to pick up more points for the risk that I took than I would if I were playing that same tournament in Belgium or the Netherlands. And so at every level, Universal simply goes back to say, look, let's let people advance at their normal rate. If someone is not a quick learner, let them play longer in their range. Don't force a kid in the 12 and under that is very happy playing kids at that level. Don't force them to go up and play kids in the 14 and under if they're not ready for that. Likewise, why force a 12 year old to stay in the 12 and under when he's good enough to play someone better? It would be like keeping someone in a level of math in school because of his age. Educators look at keeping someone in a certain level by their date of manufacture or their birth date as silly. When a person is ready for more, let them master more. And that's simply what Universal is doing by providing level-based opportunities so that a player goes in the right level, not according to their age. And I would say one one caution is that Universal's not saying, let's put an eight-year-old girl against a 33-year-old policeman who will scare the living daylights out of her. They're saying, look, be sensible. Use your local uh, judgment, your knowledge of the people that you're working with, and let use Universal as a ruler not a rule universal has been designed to be a complementary system to how any team, any any association or federation wants to work we think it makes the tournaments, the events uh player matching seeding. we think it make any any almost any association better for its use
0: well let me go over a couple basic concepts and then there's a bunch of guiding principles of utr and uh you know, so you know, from what I've read and understood, you know, competition is the key to player development. That's a basic concept of UTR competition. And in other words, you're, uh, the system uh, is is designed to promote competition, and, and and we'll get into that. And there's gonna be a lot of overlap. And by the way, if anybody calls in, uh, you know, we'll try and we'll try and get to you as quick as we can. Um, but. Uh, so there's going to be some overlap because we're going to be bouncing around. And that's, that's a good thing because I think some people might not get one concept right off but If we talk about it again, they might kind of get, uh, you know, rehash something long enough, you get it. Um, is the uh, the idea that competition is key to success. And I think, you know, this is trying to promote competition. So, for example, in back draws and uh, playing every point to win, et cetera, it's critical to facilitate, you've mentioned, level-based match play. Um, and then you mentioned, though, that obviously 30 matches in 12 months. And I just got a question right off the bat. Um, I, I could see where some people might say, hey, that's a problem already. For example, the NCAA has limited us to 25 competitions. And here's an example. I mean, I was talking to a, a former player of mine who now coaches the UC Irvine, Trevor Croneman, And I think he has a record for the most number of matches in his career. He had 500 and something. Well, that's unheard of these days because of the NCAA limitation. And so, you know, we're trying to find ways, every coach is trying to find ways to double up on matches, you know, to find every way we can to get, because players want to play more. They don't want to practice more. They want to play more. So my question is, you know, we have 30 matches in 12 months. That is tough for some people, especially meaningful matches, because if you do live in an area, because I, I know uh, that you mentioned it, it, you want it to be local, but if you live in an area that can't do that, how are you going to get 30 matches? And then secondly, for example, I'll give you an example. In Northern Cal, I think they have a lot of tournaments where there's, uh, it's, you're like one and done. I mean, you, you lose, you're out. There's no back draw. And they're over two weekends, and you can't sign up for two consecutive uh, tournaments on the same, like I can't leapfrog. So, for example, if a kid is out the first weekend, he has to wait two weekends to get into the next tournament. So you just divide 52 in half, and there's no way you're going to make, even if, you had, even if you had competitive matches and lost, you're not going to have 30 matches so i'm just curious how i mean hopefully the, um the, you know people would find ways to get around it and in fact i think your point is it encourages competition and maybe some of these sections need to change things to increase competition um and like in doubles for example some some sections uh they have for example like example in northern cal they didn't have uh they had doubles and then they had one and done in singles and so the thing is is if boy if you could increase the number of doubles competitions increase the back draws I personally think back draws and doubles but a lot of people would say hey well we don't have time and space I think some of the things that have been described in reading about UTR and the draws I think you could facilitate these things um just any comments on that before we get to some of the guiding principles of UTR
1: Sure um one is I think you've hit the nail on the head is that there are a lot of <clears throat> structures that don't make a lot of sense. Um, and and this is not to be critical of of certain structures. That it's, it's a little like a, a system that has just sort of grown up, and we keep adding more things. It's a little bit like our tax code, which is thousands of pages long. So right now, if you lose in the first round to Kalamazoo, and you're a very good player. And as a matter of fact, we know of two terrific players who played. One was knocked out in the first round. You have to play through 11 matches if you feed in consolation. It's got hey, one Dave, of the highest we have a caller. Can hold...
0: Sure. Can you hold yeah. that thought? I'm going to bring in a caller here. It's, I think it's Scott, I'm not sure. Scott, here we go. Uh Scott, are you on? Hello Scott, are you on? Did you have a did you have a question for Dave? Okay, so Dave, go ahead.
1: Yep. That's got his tongue. Um,
0: yeah, you it, well, a, it was a pocket dial.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, there are lots of structures that can be examined when we have better tools now, Steve. Um, they're simple tournament formats that if you begin to place players in tournaments according to their rating level, when they lose, you can simply do a compass draw instead of saying in the old system where – you you put you put put players in a draw by luck of the draw, then a good player might have gotten knocked out. So you really want to create a feed-in structure, but then you have we'll, people playing too many events.
0: Yep. Dave, we'll try them again one more time here. Hang on, just a sec. Great. Yeah, Scott. Uh, Scott, go ahead. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you.
2: Uh, you know, I just had a question about. Uh, I'm a beginner at this game. You know, I'm. Tennis for the first time in my life. And uh, I need some advices about that, you know.
0: Oh, uh, did you have a question for Dave regarding maybe the UTR or just what kind of general uh, question about about your game? You know, I'm just,
2: I'm, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm talking generally about tennis, you know. I just had a couple of questions. Oh. You know, I just had one question about tennis. I want to, you know, I want to get some advice from the expert you have there.
0: Okay, Dave, do you have just one, maybe one quick thing, and we'll get back to the topic there, maybe just an encouragement for uh, Scott. Yeah,
1: well, Scott, first of all, you're starting a game for a lifetime, so it's terrific. Uh, Second, you want to try to learn good fundamentals from the beginning, so find yourself a good teacher. And three, do your best to identify areas that you can get simple, level-based competition. You can often call the USDA sectional office and get started. And uh, you you should be able to find some some places to to, uh, find a good match. And hopefully that's what the universal system is all about, is eventually players at the entry level, like Scott, should be able to easily find other players at similar levels where they too can find a good competitive game that's fun.
0: And Scott one thing I'd chime in is uh I have a very close friend who I'm sure uh Dave knows as well Dodo Cheney and she uh she's about 90 something years old and she still plays uh well she she held the or still holds the number uh the number of national championships and she plays she's been playing for you know many many years and it's it is a true sport of a lifetime and then the other thing is is uh sometimes people get discouraged because it's a tough sport but it's one of those things where you put in the time and, and the effort. It's just a blast getting out there. I just, I would stop my players sometimes and say, Hey man, just stop, look around, look at the mountains, look at the sunshine. It's just awesome out here hitting a ball. I just love the feeling, the sound of a ball, whacking back and forth in tennis. Attacks, it tests your uh, athletic ability, your uh, your quickness, your strength, your speed, your agility, and all those things. It's just a great sport to incorporate all those parts of your life and, uh, and your athletic ability. So, um, as uh, Dave said, you know, make sure you get off on a good start, get some good lessons, and just uh, spend a lot of time on court. Have fun with it. Thanks a lot, Scott, yeah, for the call. You.
2: Thank you very okay. much. You know, there, there's something right. else I'd like I wanted to say. You know, uh, yeah. when you said that uh, sometimes you stop the players, when you tell them that, uh, they should take a look at the mountains, as you said, uh, I did that myself. You know, uh, the other day I went to see a game, a tennis game, that was like a, a couple of weeks ago. And I was amazed by, you know, by the fact that we were playing tennis. That was just amazing. I didn't have to, you know, hold a, hold anything in my hand or play. I just saw the game, and I was amazed. That was great, you know.
0: Yeah, it's good. Well, thanks a lot, Scott, for your call. Appreciate it. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So, Dave. Um, now, the other thing you were yes. uh, you were mentioning. Oh. Yes, Steve. What I,
1: what I thought <clears throat> was was interesting is one is there's a lot of flexibility in how you can build small types of events that can cater to the needs of a local population. And I don't want to limit the, the talk to of universal to a local population because these tools can be used just as easily at a national level or an international level. But, but what makes it easiest is when players are, are allowed to play with each other from similar levels, but you don't worry about their age as much. In a given metropolitan area, you have many more hundreds of people available. Boys can play girls at certain levels. Men will play women at certain levels. Uh, And it's not that that has to happen. It's just that in areas that are less densely populated, it's hard to get a critical density of players at a certain age, say boys 14 and under. When that 14 and under can play a 16-year-old player who might be a good good player on high school – but it's not that good in the 16 and under, they might have a great match. And it seems a shame to send people at great expense over long distances when you could simply play close to home against someone that you could play with in the future and would still give you a yeah. great match. And uh, Dave, we've got a call from that... Oregon. Yep. Oh, yep. go ahead.
0: Sorry, hang on. hang on. Just got a call from Oregon, I think. Hang on. Hello. Hello. You got a question for Dave. Hey. Yeah, hi Steve. This is Colin Louie calling. Oh, how are you?
3: Hey. Yeah. Hey. Um with uh UTR. So Dave
0: um, Dave Colin has uh Colin has a son Peter and they're from uh the Oregon area. So, yeah, go ahead, Colin.
3: Yeah. Terrific. Well, so with the, yeah, thank you. That's uh, so with the UTR. Um uh, just trying to validate uh, some of the uh ratings. Uh so there's some uh, high level juniors who are rated uh, thirteen and Serena Williams is also rated thirteen. Could you um explain that a little bit? Sure.
1: The uh as Billie Jean King said many years ago, it doesn't hurt men to compete with women. So essentially what a, what the the women's scale is capped at a thirteen point five oh. The men's scale is capped at a sixteen point five oh. That's in no way to make a judgment. It's simply to say that in areas where boys and girls say, say there's a 13-year-old boy or a a 13-year-old girl that can compete with a 15-year-old guy, that it makes more sense to have the boys and the girls on a a similar scale where they could actually have a good match with each other. As a matter of fact, my my personal idea is that I think that we develop more women from some of the weaker sections – because they have more boys or men to practice with, and in talking to a lot of women in growing up they say well i I routinely played with men when I was growing up, so this is just to facilitate the idea of 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 cross gender matches or dual gender matches so that you make it easier to reach that critical density of players at a certain level and uh that's been that's been really one of the things that been the most fun is that I talked to Billie Jean King for two and a half hours the other day, and she said, "This is just sensational to think that men and women are on the same scale and can compete with each other." Because obviously she's believed that for 40 years with world team tennis. So it 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 seems to be something that uh, encourages players, and um, and it's not meant in any way to to uh, be dismissive. It just simply says, "Let's find out and get more data about it." And as Universal gets more data, um, we'll know more about where these kind of uh, dual gender events are are successful. NorCal, USDA NorCal, has been experimenting with them and finding out in some of their events they're actually getting a higher percentage of competitive matches or matches that reach this competitive threshold than they are in some of their single gender events.
3: Okay, so so for the time being, you... Do believe that these um, male juniors um, could be competitive with Serena?
0: Sure. Yeah, Colin. Yeah. It depends I mean, on which ones you're referring to, but it's definitely yeah. the case that it, you take a college player, and that's not much different than a really good junior. You take a lower level college player or a junior, a really good junior. It depends what you mean, um, uh, how good they are. But um, I mean, I've had former. Uh, You know, college players, and if they play a professional uh, gal, they they uh, they they uh, beat them soundly. So it's it's. Mm -hmm. But Serena is obviously a great player, and she would beat a lot of college players. And then there would be a lot of uh, uh, really high quality juniors that would give her a heck of a match.
1: Yeah, and Colin, I'd also say that that we don't have enough. We don't have a lot of data, so the issue isn't to say. She should be the same. We've got a system that is very fragmented and stratified right now. If you look right. at college mm-hmm. tennis, there are ten, 10 different divisions between men's and women's. If you look at the boys and girls in the, in the USTA or high school, those are also almost completely separate bands of competition. So as universal spreads, we begin to get data that reaches deeper into these areas where, where you sort of have a cross-pollination of results i uh, I'll give you an example that's a little easier than the than the uh than the gender question is that when players play u s t a junior events and they play i t f events and they play futures we have many more crossover players who played all three so it's much easier to um to benchmark those players against the populations in each of those different systems but the more right, we sure. pull pull together that system the more the data is going to help us figure these things out. So again, the the idea for Universal is to facilitate more level-based play. As it turns out, it also seems to make much more accurate seedings than points-per-round systems. And so it's being used that way. But the real value of Universal is that imagine, uh, if if you can bear with me, when the founder, Dave Howell in Virginia, looked at college tennis and pro-men's tennis, he found that their top play reached the competitive threshold 70% of the time. So 7 out of 10 matches were real, were real knockdown, drag-out fights. He looked at a USTA Junior Tournament and found that it reached it on average about 27% of the time. So the kids and the parents were paying for 3 out of 4 matches, which might not have been most healthy or the, or the, or the best diet for their son or daughter competitively. And in high school, you look and see a lot of six love, six ones, and it's an even worse ratio. And so what you're trying to do is say, if you could look at the entire system and aggregate the number of matches these kids are playing, and if you could go from 27%, say, to 54%, if you told the president of any company you can improve the output of your company by 100%, they'd say, holy cow, show me how. And that's our premise is that's what, that's what would be transformative to American tennis, let alone the changes that it makes to accessibility, because it means a kid coming out of South Chicago could be playing in local level-based events when he and his parents couldn't afford to send him on the national junior circuit. So our premise is that any kid that's good enough based on his rating, even if he can only play local men's opens, should have an opportunity to advance further in our system, that is, our system shouldn't mm-hmm. just be based on the kids that have the biggest wallet, Yep. and it's not yep. that travel isn't a wonderful part of tennis, but it, it shouldn't be exclusive, and that's yep. been one of the yeah. things that's most excited me about UTR.
0: Yeah, another thing, Colin, it, you know, just because it's a rating doesn't mean that if somebody's in the same rating that, you know, ipso facto, they're going to beat that person. So you know, and if no. you're at, uh, for if you're, for example, if you're at the Bank of the West tournament, Stanford, you watch the gals coming in and practicing. Uh, most of the time, I've I've seen them there. They have local juniors hitting with them, and these are some of the best players in the world. And these are mm-hmm. sixteen, seventeen, eighteen-year-old boys hitting with them, and they match shot for shot. So you know they're probably a thirteen, you know, something like that. So yeah. when you're back at the the nationals, the NCAA's, you got you know uh, OSU, uh, OSU is number one. He's a 14 and chain 14 something. And, uh, you know, he's going to be obviously competing out on the tour. So it's, um, it, as Dave said, it's, it's, you know, it has years of, and I'm learning this myself. It just has years of uh, data backup. And uh, the bigger your data sample, the more important that is. So I think that's kind of where it's going. I think that's what they're hoping to achieve.
1: Yes. Yeah. And Colin, I would mention one other thing. I don't know if you remember, but Last year in the U.S. Open, um, CeCe Bellis, I think, from Northern Cal, beat Civil Kova. And everybody was saying, oh, what an upset. This is unbelievable. Well, actually, in fact, on UTR, CeCe Bellis was probably um, uh, .43 below Civil Kova. So really, that was not considered an upset in the universal system. And on a given day, and, and shortly thereafter, <clears throat> CeCe played someone in the U.S. juniors and lost to her. And that person was also a little bit below her. So essentially, we're saying that those are all pretty standard developmental issues. Sometimes you beat someone who's better, who's a little bit better, and more experienced than you. Sometimes you lose to someone who's less experienced than you. <clears throat> and we think that that's, good. that's a good way to think about your development. Excuse me. <clears throat>
3: Um, Does that help, so, uh, Colin? If, yeah. Um, if you could entertain another question for me, that would be great. If not, uh, I'll sign off. Go for
1: it. A good question so okay. far. Let's go.
3: So uh, is there any uh, thought of uh, incorporating USTA uh, league results into
1: UTR? Well, it, it, it's a great question, Colin. <clears throat> what we've tried to do is have the leagues be the leagues. The leagues actually work. <clears throat> for giving people a great social experience so we've considered that the ntrp ratings are really something that <clears throat> excuse me are um are sufficient for for the purpose they're dealing with what we'd like to see <clears throat> is that players who still want to compete actively and measure their progress could also be in this system of mastery which is what utr so eventually we have nothing against every player in the world being in that system and having his or her results be included in that. So that if they want to play in an open level-based event, they should be able to find that easily.
3: Okay. Hey, thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Colin. Thanks, Colin. Okay. Say hi to Peter. All right. Take care. Thanks.
2: Absolutely. Bye.
0: Bye. So Dave, um, Let's move on to some uh, the guiding principles. And I think sometimes going through these things will help people understand some of the principles um, uh, that you've been talking about already. Um, you've already sure. mentioned competition is, is good. competition is good for player development. Um, I, uh, how about another one? Identifying predictably competitive matches is, is desirable. And I think you've been touching on that is through the UTR, you kind of set uh, – how, how would that work practically, that principle?
1: Well, that's that's a perfect question to go with. Um, <clears throat> imagine, you probably see this locally, you've got a 13-year-old girl who's kind of a phenom, so she wants to get better competition. She enters an 18-and-under tournament. She's just as likely to find another 13-year-old girl who's seeking better competition, and they're going to play each other. One may still be a lot better than the other. So age-based systems do not necessarily put players together of the same level and so <clears throat> research says that often our age group play has five or six different levels of players in it it yields a large percentage of non competitive matches which in our opinion is like giving kids junk food uh it's not a healthy diet if you can if you can increase the the nourishment of that diet by giving them three out of four matches or at least two out of four matches that are competitive, they grow faster. And so at every level universal gives you tools to look at a competitor's list in the tournament and say, where would my son or my daughter fit in this, in this list of players? So essentially universal has tools. I'll explain it briefly. Universal is based on what's called a freemium subscription model. Anybody in the world can sign up for the, the basic service for free, and see your rating by integer. That is a 10, a nine, an eight, et cetera. Some of the advanced tools that let you get more deeply into the college search and player searches allow you to go and look at the level of college players on a team, say the Harvard team, for instance, or the USC team, Um, but it also lets you look at a competitor's list on a USDA tournament or an ITF, and actually say, if I go to that tournament, am I likely to get a number of matches that are at the level of mastery that I should be at right now? And that to me is a huge plus because now instead of changing levels, we have seven levels of tournaments in the USDA, that doesn't mean you're going to meet another player at that level. That simply means the number of points that are awarded for playing at that level. So oftentimes you'll see a better player who needs a few more points play a level down, they beat the pants off all the kids in the tournament, and the kid who should have had a chance to learn to win an event at that level gets sent home as a loser, and the good player had to play it in order to get enough points to get into, say, Kalamazoo, and they go home a little bored. And it's one more chip uh, uh, of motivation that is lost because we're, again, asking players to jump through hoops to advance rather than to actually earn their advancement based on beating kids of higher and higher levels.
0: Oh, good. Thanks. Um, and you know, some of this information I'm reading, uh, you know, listeners can go online. Um, what, what's the website for UTR, Dave?
1: It's universal tennis, And you can okay. sign up. There's a little, little, little yellow post-it sign on for free if you want to. And, uh, and eventually that, website is uh uh, it's good it's a terrific tool but will be upgraded shortly um and what's exciting to me is imagine how how good it is to to have player ratings right now and imagine in the future if we could have trajectories for seeing where players have been and where they're going and that's when motivational motivation really goes up for junior players to begin to be interested in their development and to and if we can teach them how to find a healthy diet of competition Sometimes you play a little up. Sometimes you play a little down. And uh, and every so often you should get your butt kicked. And every so often you should give someone else a thrashing. But in general, if you're aiming at matches within 1.0 up or down, you're probably getting the best, most productive diet for your improvement um, and your motivation.
0: Good. Um, ob- another principle is win-loss records. We've touched on this. This is not the best indicator of a player's level of play objectivity is better than subjectivity. I've got a question on that because I think a lot of maybe uh, maybe expound on that because to me, uh, as a coach, subjectivity does matter. For example, and I think maybe you're talking, we're not comparing apples on this one here, but uh, uh, to me if I see a player and I go, hey, you know, that guy, I can see uh, in a month's time that person's going to be ju- uh, much better than this other person based on some skill sets, uh, I might play them a little bit more right now because I know they need the competition. You're not talking about that kind of subjectivity. What are you What are you referring to?
1: Not at all. Not at all. Is Universal is making absolutely no statement about a person's potential. It's simply saying that based on your body of work, here is a fair estimate of where you can find the best competition for what you need. So it is not trying to be a an ironclad system of rankings. I think we get too attached. To rankings and i 'll give an an example of France, for instance, France only ranks about sixty men and about thirty to forty women. Everyone else in the country is rated there's no they, they, we somehow have gotten attached to rankings, but the value of rankings is uh is really in question after a certain number so my question is if people get bent out of shape about rankings. Why do we use them for everything? Why do people define themselves as living and dying by my ranking? And why are people paying so much money to change their ranking when if you could simply get them into the best level-based play, they would be more motivated to continue. They'd have a healthier idea, as you said when you were young, or Paul Goldstein said, I just played. I like to play. And if we stop putting these unnecessary speed bumps in front of kids, and begin to reduce some of these unnecessary barriers. The game grows, and right now I think we're actually constricting the game because we have these barriers. And, and to until be, you've to had, be, uh,
0: uh, yeah. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. I was going no, to say, but to be realistic, game, to be to be realistic, we have, uh, like, even in college tennis, we have rankings, and in fact, in recruiting, you know, coaches will say, hey. Our school is our business school is ranked number ten in uh, U.S. News World Report. Our school is uh, number such and such in this ranking, and our team is here, and our players are this, and we use them all the time. Is it possible to kind of break this mold? I mean, you know, businesses, Forbes top five, you know, business five hundred. I mean, it's we're we're a ranked world. How, how, how do you combat that with a rating system?
1: Uh, the rating feels better to people. They just, they gravitate <laughs> toward it. Uh, it just, it they just feel a little healthier. This makes a little more sense. When I tell juniors about this system, it's almost as if I can hear them breathing a sigh of relief.
0: Yeah, I could see that.
1: <laughs> and and when I tell college coaches and and I see our players laugh about it and they say, well, you're ranked down here because you, you didn't keep fighting when you were down the other day. You know, now you're going to, now you're going to learn. So Universal basically wants to reward the behavior that it wants. And if you reward games won versus games lost instead of matches, when a kid's down a set and a break, and he knows he's going to lose to the better player anyway, most of the, some kids throw in the towel. What Universal says is don't throw in the towel. Every game's important. That was the piece that Billie Jean King loved most of all. She said that's what we tell our people in World Team Tennis all the time. Just fight for one more game. And sometimes you fight for one more game, and then you get another game, and you get another game, and that's where, that's where the comebacks of history are. But you don't learn yeah. that until yeah. the system rewards that.
0: Right, and uh, you know, as coaches, we have to kind of in, uh, kind of inculcate that in players sometimes because they've maybe grown up in a system where hey, it doesn't matter if I win more. Yeah, I'm already out of this match anyway. And we have to we have to undo that half the time uh, with guys, just teach them how to fight for every every possible point they can get. Um, that's so right. Another, another principle here is, uh, staying close to home is good for junior development, regardless of where home is. Now speak to the people that, for example, where that home might be, you know, uh, not exactly in a highly populated place and maybe their kid is the best player in town. I mean, where are they going to get that competition? How well, are they going to work? Here's this a
1: system question in? for you. We, we've got the best college tennis system in the world, some division three teams are so good that they would beat division one teams. How many sixteen year old players do you know in the country who can beat the best player, the number one player on a college team, division one team? And I've asked that question for six years. And you can hardly come up with a player unless you get a, a Jack Sock or someone. You can hardly come up with a player. The exception proves the rule. Is it is that if we can find a way to connect our younger players with their older, stronger, smarter peers, that is the players in college, and some of the most experienced players we've turned out, which are post-college players, on whom we've spent probably at least a half a million dollars in developing them. If you can connect our 14-, 15-, 16-year-old players the way they do routinely in their tournaments in France, the level of improvement in American tennis will go up dramatically right now. We put I'm 2 fourteen a... year old players together, and we hope that they'll come out as smarter than a fourteen year old It doesn't happen. You put a fifteen year old French player with a thirty three year old guy that drop shots him and lobs him and may call the line a little tight and uh see if he explodes. That kid's going to come off the court a smarter person
0: well and i'm that's I'm with what's you 100% happening on in that every that other
1: now. country. Yeah, that's happening in every other country except the United States, which is blessed with the most successful collegiate system in the world. It's the envy of every other country.
0: So what we have to find, though, we have to find a way because of recruiting rules, is to uh, help right. facilitate that connection. I mean, so that's an NCAA question. And that's something where you know we we need to work on that possibly. So without you know and you know having the whole idea is competitive advantage of recruiting, and really what we're doing is we're hurting uh, our our local kids.
1: It's short sighted, Steve. It's basically saying if I worry that someone's going to play on the Yale campus and therefore go to Yale instead of Harvard. That's short-term interests. That's 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 a narrowness that is hurting American tennis. If I worry about having a junior practice with another junior across town because he takes lessons from a different pro, that's a short-term look at the game. We need to sort of reel the lens back and say, let's look at what's really good for the game. It would be good for our juniors to play together the same way the swedes did back in the what the 1980s and 90s they would be they would train with each other and they would make each other better we have good juniors all over the country whose pros won't let them practice with each other and certainly college players who don't ever see a junior so we're not right now involved in conversations with the USTA to say how can we with the support of the USTA build a more sensible pathway we're including allowing juniors to play on college campuses with fewer restrictions knowing that this is good for the development of our game Uh, how can we keep our post-college players more involved because as I said we spend an inordinate amount of money developing them and just when they're at the peak of their tennis experience we put them out to pasture and say hey go give up tennis for a while while you get a job In every other country, those players after college are routinely contributing to the player development system playing in these open tournaments where they can come in on a weekend and enter at the quarterfinals and win some prize money. And those 15, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids that are getting the benefit of that very rich competitive diet, you show me those kids in five years and they're going to be knocking the lights out of American tennis. And that's the local right. experience. You keep keep those kids in their home soil as long as is practical. I'm not saying if you have a phenom that you don't have to get them a better diet, but college coaches all over the country, if you relax the rules a little bit, would all follow the, all over themselves to give a young upcoming junior a chance to compete more regularly against better, stronger players. Now, there's one quote that I often use, Elliot Teltzer told me years ago that he never would have been ready for the pro tour after high school if he hadn't routinely, daily, been practicing players at USC, UCLA, and Pepperdine. Now, there were fewer rules back then, but he was able to develop to a world-class level because he had that opportunity. We've disconnected those things out of a sense of, well, I don't want someone to have a recruiting advantage. I don't want someone to cheat but we've hurt the system overall.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, no, that's another whole topic. And I think that's why the NCAA USTA and just, you know, I, you know, it it has to be something where there's a working relationship and, and people to realize it's not a competitive advantage, competitive advantage. I mean, some schools are just going to have to, it's, you know, you are where you are and it's, it it is, like you said, it's short-sighted. We have to be more concerned about developing the game and, uh, Uh, that end of it. Let let me mention a couple uh, other principles here. Maybe I'll just read through these and you can pick one you want to talk about because uh, somebody may not go to the website and I want to be able to use this uh, time opportunity to maybe in one encapsulated moment be able to uh, address all these issues. But uh, another one is playing to win every game is good for player development. Gaming the system is counterproductive to player development. Chasing points is counterproductive to player development. Level-based tournament play is good for the game and player development. Retiring early, as you mentioned before, in tough matches is counterproductive to player development. And personally, if I had somebody uh, tank a match, I'd pull them off the court. So uh, Let's see. Do credit uh, be given for backdraw and consolation matches? And um, I'd like to maybe address that one right there. Um, And then if you want to chime in on some of the other ones, is I really feel that uh, this system... Uh, promotes a healthy view of the backdrop because i've had you know uh, for example i'll give you an example my son hadn't played in a while and uh you know he's a little baller and he gets out there and he's playing this tournament and he had he was nervous he hadn't played a you know competitive match tournament match you know in a long time he's played a lot of adults he'll hit with uh college players and all this so he's, he's in there and uh so he's Playing his match, gets a little nervous. Okay, he loses. It was a close, according to UTR, it would be a competitive match. You know, it was a very close match. He was up a break, et cetera, but got nervous and, and lost the lead and lost the match. But then he goes in the back draw, and he wins uh, fairly handily through the back draw. And uh, that, he, that built his confidence. And, you know, a lot of players, he was down. It's like, hey, you know, what's the best way to come off to, to deal with the loss? Get your derriere back out on the court and start – you know playing hard to win again, and then if you win, all right, you know you can lick your wounds a little better and so I but a lot of times some tournaments, the mindset is well, we got too many kids, not enough courts um we we don't want to have a back draw, um and let alone play doubles, you know, doubles get sacrificed you know for the for the advancements of a singles main draw or something, and I think that alone those two things of playing back draw, matches, and doubles are just something that really uh need to be ch- uh enhanced more and how would UTR using UTR uh, not necessarily replacing anything the USDA does but how would using UTR help this
1: Well I think you, you ask a great question and and uh and I think that that backdraws are one of the better features of our system because it doesn't just say one and done Some people argue about that. They say, no, you have to play really under pressure and you have to know that your tournament is over when you lose. But when people go to ITF tournaments, spending a lot of money to go maybe play one match and then go home. So I don't think that's really practical when people are playing a lot. But I do think that with the value of of big data and collecting these results from all over the world, now possible, that we have more information about every player that's coming into these events. As we have more information, it becomes possible to think about changing some of our traditional ways of looking at seeding. Uh, Traditionally, you'd seed one in four because people were coming from different parts of the world and you didn't know where they belong. So you say, okay, if the only goal of a tournament is to see who's the best player, any system will do. But now that the customer is king and we're losing people from this great game because we're not giving them a good experience, it's time to broaden our concept of what's a tournament for. And if a tournament is for, if we look at the tournament, pull the lens back and say, what if our goal is to give every every competitor in this event a better experience? Then we begin to look at seeding more players. We begin to look at putting, as they do in France, we put less experienced players into a draw earlier. We begin to look at, flighting events on a given weekend so kids aren't playing five matches and having to miss school on Monday. It's entirely possible to help the system evolve so that we give kids a healthier diet of competition in a manageable amount of time that doesn't require them to make huge, um, um, uh, draw, huge withdrawals on their education let alone the money that parents have to put into it. If, if I've said for six years that if we looked at the aggregated amount of money that parents, coaches, students have to spend and, and expend in missing school, and we looked at that as an enormous trust fund of American tennis, and we figured out how to deploy all of those resources more efficiently, we would redesign the system from the top down. From the bottom up. Uh, if you only are trying to figure out how to ex- how to spend the resources of the U.S. Open, you come up and say, "Okay, we'll put in X number and X amount into player development, X amount into community development." But that doesn't address the the enormous cost that the shareholders, the, excuse me, the stakeholders in our system, the parents and the junior coaches and the players themselves. Those are enormous costs to us all and we can get a better bang for the buck if we create a system that has more of the elements of the French system.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Um now I'm curious about let's move on here to some uh some concepts of UTR that I think as we discuss them will help maybe rehash some of these areas and clarify is that sure. you mentioned before a com- competitive threshold now, competitive threshold, I think you said, was if somebody is one point uh, up or down, um, or maybe I have that incorrect. Uh, you, you explain that.
1: Yeah, let, let, let me go through that, because this is a great concept and often to be confused. The competitive threshold is something that Dave Howell, the founder of UTR, he's he's the guy that I call the money ball man, because he had such a brilliant lens for looking at tennis. But competitive threshold is something, if we look at, an event, say a given tournament like the NCAA Championships, we can see how many of those matches in that tournament reached a competitive threshold. And the results over and over again show that matches within 1.0 up or down reach the competitive threshold probably 60 plus percentage of the time. Matches outside that threshold reach it about uh, um, twenty five percent of the time. So we know that putting players together by their by their bandwidth is makes more sense. But the actual algorithm itself is not based on reaching that competitive threshold. It's based on each game you win relative to the number of games you lose can pull up your rating or if you lose a lot to a player who's rated below you, it might pull you down some. But the idea always is to is to take your temperature of who you are overall as a player, and have and and not to have players get bent out of shape because they went up 0.03 um, this week and they went down 0.05 the next week. It's uh, it's it, it's really I think of it a lot as a river that's rising. And if you if you put a hundred corks in that river, and it's windy, those corks are going to bob up and down at different levels all the time. If the river is rising, everybody's getting better. And we need to produce that rising river in American competition where everybody has opportunities to get better because they're getting the diet of competition that is optimal for them.
0: So, I, I think uh, if I, in, in hearing you before, um, the competitive threshold is in this is trying to create a situation where the matches are competitive, which means, for example, if you have a two out of three set match, the match is competitive. If you've gotten seven games, the loser has gotten seven or games because it's one or more. And uh, yes. then, and if it's then, then the, the number, and I think you mentioned before with the UTR, you have seventy-five percent of matches being reaching that competitive match, or it becomes a competitive threshold um, because of the lo- the level-based playing. And then your routine matches and your decisive matches um, are, you know, if you've uh, I think it's 50 to 34% or something. You know, it, just, it drops a little bit. Um, but your idea is to get this competitive zone. I don't know if there's a difference between the competitive zone or the competitive threshold, um, but the idea yeah, is to get all these matches closer. Yeah, go ahead.
1: That's right. So you've got it great. You, the competitive zone is 1.0 up or down. That's what's unique about UTR, is that it has a competitive zone that is actually – proven by research to group players so they have more satisfying matches. The competitive threshold is simply that that <clears throat> if we look at one match, Steve, you know that you've played competitive matches that were knocked down drag out matches and they were six three, six three. So if we looked at one event on its own, we could not say that that for sure was a competitive ma- was a competitive match. And we've also looked at a match where someone won four and three and they were snoozing through the match. So we know that that match might not have been a competitive match. But if we look at thousands or hundreds of thousands of matches and you compare that across the board, the matches that are above that threshold, which probably say, if I play you and lose to you, 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 know, you broke me. Each set, probably, but you didn't break me all the time. and So we probably had a good tussle. Um Let's just suppose that let's call that arbitrarily. That's the competitive threshold. Then it's possible to look at all of our systems of competition and say, how effective are they? So if essentially, UTR can produce a report card for every section in the United States and say, here's how you're doing in delivering your product. And so we've been very helpful in NorCal in having them examine how many matches in their age-based systems are, are reaching competitive threshold, and then find out when they produce level-based events, they reach the competitive threshold more often. That's a win for tennis, and it's a win for the kids. And so Universal is simply trying to give associations a tool for simply looking and saying, how do we make – our product better. It's like helping a restaurant say, hey, if you're losing 30% of your 37% of your customers every time, maybe you should look at your chef and say, how good is that meal? And if we give you a tool for saying, you can prepare a better meal that people like more, that's going to create more players. More players are gonna stick with our system because as Universalist says right now, we lose players from a great game because we fail to give them a good game. And Universal's premise is is we keep players in a great game because we give them a good game. And Universal is simply trying to provide tools that any association, any independent tournament that wants to run a non-sanctioned event, any USDA event, any ITF event, you have better tools for creating a more satisfying experience for the customer. And the customer is king these days.
0: That's good. Uh, Let me ask uh, one of the things, and there's a whole range of application to this, and let me just mention a couple of them, Uh, you know, in terms of, I I know a lot of college coaches that subscribe to it. Uh, I don't know what percentage of college coaches do, but, um, you know, in talking with some of them, you know, we use it as a, it's a a recruiting tool, not the recruiting tool, but it's also, for example, a coach can look at a power six rating. For example, we can look at a team and say, look, their Power Six ratings in 11.4 and um, uh, my team is uh, 11.2. Or it's going to be a competitive match. Or if they're a 12, you know, and you're a 10, you know, that your probably chances are it's going to be uh, it's going to go in their favor. But you still play. That's why we play the match. You know, paper doesn't mean anything. It's, you still got to go play the match. But what it can even help coaches do is. Uh, Set schedules. You can say, "Look, these. I got twenty-five percent of mine. I know I'm going to win. Twenty-five percent is going to be a drag-out fight, and twenty-five percent is going to be, uh, or you know, maybe another fifty percent, or is going to be things where, man, we, we're going to take our shots at some big dogs and see if we can come away some wins." So, uh there's recruiting, yeah. there's scheduling advantages or uses for it. Uh, any thoughts on those?
1: Yeah. Well, I think I'm so glad you brought that up, Steve, because. If you look at college tennis, we're just as stratified as junior tennis. Junior tennis has 12s, 14s, 16s, and 18s, and they have boys and girls. But we have more than that in college. We have Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three, NAIA, Junior College, Community College. We've got a lot of strata. Years ago, Foothills Junior College out in California used to play when Brad uh, Gilbert was there. They used to play. Cal Berkeley, Division I school, and beat them. Uh in the uh it's probably seventies, late seventies, eighties, S.I.U. Edwardsville, a Division II program, was ranked four or five in the country under Kent DeMars. that's, um, yeah,
0: that's where Ken and Flack so and Robert Consuso came out of, yeah.
1: Exactly, exactly. Some of our finest Davis Cup players. So at every level, as we've gotten more organized, as the USDA got more money in the 70s and 80s and 90s, they began to organize tennis better. And, and unfortunately, it's actually disconnected a lot of the efficiencies that we used to have where if you had someone across town, it didn't matter if they were in a different division, you didn't care. You said, if we can get a good match, let's play a good match. And so at every level, this power six rating, which is essentially a a uh it's the sum of the top 6 players on say the Harvard team versus the the sum of the top 6 players on the East Washington team um now we can say is this likely to be a competitive match and and uh, in talking with the new CEO of the IPA Tim Russell we'd like to begin reducing those barriers to competition right now a division 1 program if it plays a division 3 program and it loses its ranking, gets hurt. It's just like kids ducking, ducking matches. If if we imagine if we ever rated our teams in the preseason according to their Power Six rating, how much more sensible would that be to put players in a bandwidth where we say, okay, here's Harvard. We know we're in a bandwidth with ten or fifteen other teams. How much better is that than ranking someone 34? when on a given day they can beat a team that's 12. It's no different than kids playing up or down in their competitive zone. And so at every level, we limit our, we limit the efficiencies of the game and the potential for good matches and economical matches uh, by these artificial barriers. And it's time to begin reducing barriers. I'll give you another example. Canada, largely its population base, is is very close to the U.S. border because it gets colder as you go further north. And so uh, in in um, Winnipeg, Manitoba, for instance, their easiest jaunt to good tournaments is Minneapolis. If they play, go play another Canadian tournament, they have to travel much further. And yet our borders prevent that kind of natural interaction. If a student is in um, Fairfield, Connecticut, and could travel a half an hour to New York to play in a USTA Eastern event, they can't do that. They wouldn't get any ranking points, and in many cases, they wouldn't be allowed to play in that event. That's an unnecessary restriction that causes us to lose players. That player has to travel to Boston a much longer trip, and probably an overnight instead of a day trip. And so at every level, if we began to really deploy our resources more efficiently and more logically, we would make it possible for probably a much larger percentage of population to enjoy and compete in tennis. And that was really one of the primary motivations that I had, Steve, years ago when I learned about Universal, as I realized, as I was in sort of latter stages of my career, that if I were growing up in tennis today my family could not have afforded to give me the opportunities they did. And so I wouldn't have had the chance at this career that I've had for which I've been so grateful. And I think a lot of other people realize that tennis now is in worse shape than we, we found it. And it's, and, and universal has developed hundreds and hundreds of friends who have said, we can work to make this system better. And they've used their local energy and passion and, uh, connections, to spread the word, and that's really why Universal has spread so effectively. We know from experience that national mandates tend to cause a lot of pushback. Nobody likes to be told what to do, and nobody likes a one-size-fits-all solution. The beauty of Universal is it's kind of like a neat idea that when you learn about it, you can't wait to tell a friend, and that's (laughs) why it has spread. And so well, like it's you, not like you Dave said that Fish telling the story. It's it's Steve Clark, and it's it's hundreds of people saying, "Hey, do you know about this? Doesn't this make sense? Why aren't we doing it?"
0: Well, you mentioned pushback. So, uh, what what would be some uh, before we run out of time? What would be some objections that you've heard? Because obviously, I you know, not knowing all the ins and outs, I wouldn't know a lot of the objections, but. What are some objections you've heard, and maybe some responses to those? Maybe some, because maybe other people are thinking the same thing and, and they don't know to ask. So,
1: well, it's really interesting. Uh, this is going to sound outrageous, but aside from organizations that may feel in some way that this is threatening to them, which it's never intended to be, it's it's really we've intended this to be a home run for U.S. tennis and the USTA and have always worked collaboratively with any association that wants to work and and they're all happy when they do it um but um but i'm trying to remember what I, <laughs> what i was getting to we've worked collaboratively with associations we're not trying to say you have to change anything we're just trying to say make it better Maybe you can remind me of that question, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I
0: think we, I think I think actually what you were about to say because I could tell by the tone of your vo- voices you haven't heard any objections because uh, oh, yes, I asked exactly. what were some objections. I, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's so outrageous. But in six years of telling this story, I have challenged people to say if you could make this single change and you could put all the all of the weight of all of our associations behind making this one change toward making level-based play, more productive, and more local where it it gives more accessibility and affordability. Can you name a single point of leverage that we could put our weight behind that would make as transformative a difference? And I've never had anyone say, here's something bigger. And so I think that you have to sort of say, we've got a limited amount of time to make things better. Um, let's all get together. Let's Work with the USGA. Let's uh, let's bring in. You know, American pros are introducing 500,000 new kids to the game every year. They're doing a stupendous job, but we don't have an inviting pathway for those kids afterwards. We have 345,000 high school kids who, if they go into a USGA event, only 10% of them would survive and have a good experience with ratings you actually begin to make those people feel like full citizens in US tennis. That's that's a home run for US tennis. So at every level if we can keep a larger percentage of the kids coming into the game through these simple one, two, three, four entry level events which have been have have at a local level have been proven to work and, and actually be a good good source of income for local pros, more so than spending time teaching. If we give our entry-level kids an easy one-two-three simple delivery system and we get the high school players involved, all of a sudden American tennis is booming again. And if then you give your top 16-year-old players in cities all over the country or areas all over the country that are close to college teams and you let them connect with their college players the way they do in France and every other country, you have a transformation of American tennis.
0: Let's get real practical. I, I've heard some, uh, like, for example, an objection by one section that they were saying, well, you know, for example, uh, Southern Cal or California has all these courts and they can afford to do something like this, or or um, the idea of, well, we don't have, you know, we have to sh- play everything on one weekend, et cetera. Can you give it a practical example of how the UTR might have a draw? Let's say a 16 16- Draw because if you have if you have every age division and there's 16 draws, not even 32, but let's just say 16, you know you're running those multiple events on a weekend. How, how would that work practically? Maybe give a real quick rendition.
1: Yeah, no, that's a terrific question because one of the things that attracted me to Universal <clears throat> when I realized how easy it was to create a very small footprint of an event, you could have 16 players on a given weekend, and if you've got very different levels instead of running an age group tournament where you might only get six 14 and under kids and you might get uh, seven 16 and under and you might cancel the girls 18, let them all play in an event according to their level so the younger or the less experienced kids, maybe a 17-year-old less experienced girl who still loves to play, but she's not that good yet, let her play in on a Friday night. Say you put four weaker players with four other players uh, on four courts. You get four winners. The four losers play off in a compass draw on Saturday morning, maybe Saturday afternoon. The four winners from Friday night come in and play four better players Saturday morning. You get four winners that come out and play Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning. In each case, when you lose, you simply play the other people that lost at that level. Everybody gets a nice measure of tennis. It hasn't sent anybody to the hospital. It hasn't caused anybody to lose any school. And if you've got more than 16, play two flights. The person that wins the B flight is going to get a great credit on his UTR rating. Um, And so it's not necessary to figure out points per round. And at every level, it's possible to create smaller footprint events that don't require taking over an entire club for a weekend. I think that's where tennis has changed, is we think we have to have these mega events when, in fact, one club could host something on Friday night, another club could take over the match on Saturday morning. It it ha- it actually has a lower impact at every level. So particularly in places that have indoor courts, um, it's much easier to run sensible events that everybody gets what they need.
0: Let me address this because this is an important point. I heard from one section um, that they had so many that they had scheduling problems, and there were so many tournaments that they felt they were diluted at a higher level. Well, you wouldn't have that problem if if somebody had a UTR rating, they had to be in this tournament over here, and the higher UTRs played in another tournament. You know, for example, it might prevent somebody you know let half the draw going in there, kind of getting their butts kicked the first round. Um, those better players would play in another, uh, you know, they could get into that other tournament. Kind of almost like um, it sounds like what you're saying it would be if you just had a certain level of uh, rating uh, that had to play that tournament. And if you played uh, maybe in this other tournament a weekend before or something like that and you uh, did really well, then maybe you get into that tournament um, almost like a exactly. of some sort.
1: Exactly, Steve. And that's a much more sensible way to put kids together then throwing everybody together. Again, as I joked, it's based on their date of manufacture. You know, it doesn't work that way. You put, you put, you put a hundred kids running around the track. Some kids are going to blow around the track in, you know, 30 seconds and other kids are going to be walking by the end. They just are different. Kids are built differently. And so when you put them in their level, they get to progress at a level that is comfortable and appropriate for them. And so I think that if you look at our our system of seven different levels of tournaments, there's no guarantee if you go into a level four tournament that you're going to find level four players. And so essentially, all of those levels are, at best, crude approximations of level-based competition. They just don't work that way. Because, as I said, the better player may have to play an event to pick up a few points and go into a weaker event that they don't have any interest in playing, but the system says you have to play it. I'll give you another example. Our system at Kalamazoo last year, the ninth-highest-rated best, ninth highest rated player at Kalamazoo, fell fellow named Dayton Bauman. he had to play in the qualifiers because he hadn't been playing USDA events, so he didn't have enough points per round accumulated. To get out of the qualifier, fortunately, he got into the tournament. But those are the the kind of inefficiencies or illogical things that we actually have the tools now to prevent. And that's why working yeah. closely with the USDA is going to simply make the system better. And the other point I'd make quickly, Steve, is that in the '70s, when we had tennis booming, um, there were thousands of non-sanctioned events. People of every different level could find an event that was fun for them. And as people got busier and tennis got more organized, we actually kind of organized the life out of that non-sanctioned local uh, culture. Mm -hmm. Now now that we have this big data connective tool that can rate everybody, regardless of your nationality, regardless of your locale, now we have a tool for reconnecting that culture through lots of independent events, because Universal's premise is that the new normal is for kids and adults to play multiple pathways. No longer yeah. you do just play UTF, you, you play USTA events since that new normal is you could be playing four different pathways. Universal rewards all of them
0: equally. Hey Dave, we, we are at a time and an hour and a half has flown by. I just wanted to say it thanks for Dave. Uh and if you and if you want to look at that information, go to their website. Dave, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for being here.
1: Steve, great questions. Thanks so much for your efforts to to discuss this uh, openly and we invite questions from anybody and uh hope that we can get some more fans on board to make this change to the US system.
0: All right, thanks a lot, Dave. Alrighty. And we're Take signing care. off. Thank thanks. You, Steve. Alrighty. Alrighty, bye. Bye bye.